This reading is from the book of Amos. The words of Amos, who among them was the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and hutters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of shepherds with her and the top of Carmel dries up. Seek good and not evil that you may live and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I hate, despise your festivals, and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. But take from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Andrew. And... Uh... I'd like all of you to entertain the question that's printed in your bulletin uh, after having heard the text. What do you think, based on that, what is God up to in us and with us? Tough words. Challenging words. We're going to unpack them a little bit. In Hamlet... One of Shakespeare's classic plays, of course. Marcellus famously said, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Well, Amos is saying to the Israelites that something is rotten in the state of Israel. And because of it, neighboring Assyria will soon invade because of their moral and spiritual bankruptcy. And while it's too late for Israel to avoid its fate this time, there are lessons to be learned for future generations of Jews and Christians alike, and that includes us. What is rotten in Israel, according to Amos, speaking for God, is this. The privileged worshipers are caught up in a sense of entitlement with God, while the rest of the nation languishes in poverty and desperation as if in a parallel, unrelated universe. Not acceptable. And this cancerous imbalance is profoundly at odds with God's vision for humanity. And God lets them know it. Hence, God says to those who are devoted worshipers who attend a church every week, in the temple, in the synagogue, God says to them, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. He goes on, I will not accept your offerings, I will not even accept your music uh, and your songs, says God. Ouch, he doesn't even like their singing. Now it's getting personal. Something is rotten in God's people, and it shows up in the narcissism of their worship. They gather for worship while neglecting justice and righteousness, which is to say, the work of God in the real world where people of all kinds live their lives. 
To say that God is not impressed with their worship is an understatement. God is outraged by them because their interest in God extends only as far as their own interests. Amos gives us a picture of a God, however cranky that God may be, repeatedly put before us by Israel's prophets. A God who is interested in the people who are not gathered in his house for worship. Oh, he cares about the people who are gathered too. But in particular, the ones who are not there. And one of the big reasons he's interested in them is not only because many of them are kicked around by the world, taken advantage of, pushed to the margins, left without adequate resources. Also, the promises of God are not shared with them. Meanwhile, those on the inside, the worshipers, are uh, the winner's circle. Hmm? They have plenty of offerings to bring because they can. And these same people might even assume that their wealth and their social standing is proof that God has rewarded them for their righteousness, that God is on their side, as it were, that they indeed belong in the winner's circle. And then God says, I will not accept your offerings. In fact, I despise your festivals. The problem is not their worship, you understand. God wants them to worship. The problem is what happens when they leave worship or what doesn't happen when they leave worship. It is brilliantly summarized in verse 24, a verse that helped make um, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech so memorable. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Isn't that a beautiful image, powerful image? But let justice roll down like waters. It's an aggressive image, comparing justice to water flowing downward and outward to everyone, even violently so. I'd like to spice things up a little bit with a movie clip. I'm going to try to work in movie clips as much as I can in these last three months. Here's an image of the waters of justice rolling down in the the two towers. There's a scene where a dam is released above uh, the cruel Isengard and the cruelty and slavery and abuse of Isengard is washed away. Let's take a look. Lights, please.
wasn't it worth it just to see that film clip? The waters of justice flattening the tools and structures of oppression so memorably. That image is like justice from God. Bold, decisive, not shy. It rearranges things, does it not? Destroying structures which need to go, creating possibilities for life to flourish. Justice refers to fairness, which is about laws that protect people, and it's about sharing resources so that every member of society has basic needs met and has a chance to contribute. I think of um, the waters rolling down in the Emancipation Proclamation. I think of uh, the waters rolling down in the suffragette movement of the early 20th century, or perhaps Roosevelt's New Deal, things that rearrange the landscape so that people may be given life. Closer to home, the work of some who are advocates for affordable housing in our communities, bold measures that rearrange the landscape like a flash flood to make sure that people who are taken advantage of or left out would be treated fairly or have a voice. That's what was going on in the time of Amos and, and all of the prophets uh, as well. What are the fault lines today as we seek justice? What do you think? There are plenty, I think. We might not all agree on them. Remember how God feels if we relegate our religious lives to our relationship with God only. God tends to rather aggressively redirect us outwardly, no? And that may sound kind of harsh and aggressive on God's part, but you know what? You know what's hopeful about that? That God is a God of love and that he cares about what happens down here on the ground where real people live their lives. To me, that's hopeful. This is a God worth believing in, a God with heart. And when we are narcissistic, as we all are, myself included, God forgives us and sends us back out there to learn and grow and serve. Now, um, with this image in play, I can't help but think of the, uh, a modern version of waters flowing down to everyone, the trickle-down economic theory. Um, this too, of course, is an image of water flowing to everyone, symbolize, uh, symbolizing the spread of economic prosperity. <laughs> Beth's looking at me like, are you nuts? No, no. Uh, Trickle-down theory. Um, now these days, there's nary a trickle, uh, but even if there were, we somehow think it's a model of effectiveness if a trickle is generated from the wealth at the top. While, meanwhile, according to God's preferred ways for his children, justice and righteousness is a torrent of rushing water. You get the contrast. I mean, compared to God's vision, doesn't a trickle seem kind of miserly? Sort of like, can't we aim a little higher than a trickle? Is that the optimum, really? Well, just playing around with comparisons. I think, uh, for God, it's clearly more than a trickle. Now, in fairness... Comparing these two is a bit like apples and oranges. Uh, while one is strictly uh, economic, the biblical image goes much further to include the, the fullness of, of human well-being. But make no mistake about it, for prophets like Amos, 
it is economic too, beyond a shadow of a doubt. In fact, that's pretty much the starting point. Things like fair wages, providing for the poor, and forgiveness of debts are front and center repeatedly with the prophets. Okay, justice makes us uncomfortable because it rearranges things. Righteousness, I want to close with a few words on righteousness because there's the uh, justice rolling down like waters, kind of more aggressive image, and then there's righteousness. Righteousness of an ever-flowing stream. That's more, it's a little flatter. It's more gentle. It's continuous. But it's still powerful, right? Righteousness here is a relational term. It refers to acts of love, cultivating loving relationships, creating caring communities. And this is one reason that righteousness is characterized as an ever-flowing stream. The loving relationships that every single one of us need must, by nature, be constant and dependable day in and day out. Uh, think of a few examples. The relationships we've formed at Mount Olivet here with families of the Parenting with Purpose and with Home Free, families who experience a member of the family in prison and need an ever-flowing stream, and uh, uh, mostly women who are in a, um, a shelter at Home Free who need trustworthiness and dependability of an ever-flowing stream, relationships. One of our members here has been personally reaching out to the homeless, even living as one of them, yes, partly in order to befriend them and form community with them, make breakfast for them. Think of when you have an opportunity to be church, be community. At, at those, uh, those folks at work, um, folks that you uh, play with, folks that you worship with, to be church and form relationships. Righteousness is being a positive presence in the lives of those around you in an ongoing, dependable way that engenders trust. How does God lead you to do that in your life? In uh, wrapping this up, We've spent a lot of time lately talking about the missional, missional church, missional church. What is that? Some of you ask. Sometimes staff ask, what is missional? Yeah, it's a big word. It can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes we're not sure what it is. It's pretty simple in Amos, and it's still true today. Every congregation and every synagogue is called to be a part of the justice that rolls down like waters. However you see it, However, God is leading you to see it and to act upon it. And every congregation is called to jump into the stream, the ever-flowing stream of righteousness. And the waters that roll down and the, the stream are outward and downward to all. But don't we still need to come here inside the church, to gather as we are tonight? Absolutely. And the truth of the matter is we 
all of us are broken and in need of each other and of God all the time. And as we are fed, hopefully, and lean on each other, filled with God's grace, it's at that time that God taps us on the shoulder and he shows us the door because there's work to be done out there, just as there is in here. The stream never sleeps. The waters keep jostling the landscape. These are the waters into which we are baptized, and they are never, ever a trickle, by the way. One of the reasons I feel my call is complete here is because I believe more than ever that this community understands precisely this. More and more all the time, you're looking out there and you're going out there to be the church and engage in mission. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.